Our Father, we thank you for the extraordinary subjects that we have before us tonight. Uh, the wonder of your word giving us a glimpse into things that will be and helping us to see the significance uh, for our here and now, regardless of when they will be. And we pray you'd help us to be attentive as we think together about uh, these subjects. And we ask that it would be to your glory and to our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we take up uh, second coming, um, the general resurrection and uh, judgment tonight. Um, the, um, but before we begin, any question about perseverance, unpardonable sin, or mortality? Any questions about that? And uh, let me mention it now, and I will try to mention it again at the close of our session tonight. Uh, this is our next to the last session on concise theology. I'm, in some ways, I'm very sad about that, but uh, we have uh, one more session. The following Wednesday, we will not meet. Um, I have a standing judicial committee me- meeting the very next day, and uh, I will be just absolutely swamped and trying to be prepared for that meeting. Um, so we'll take an evening off. Uh, and then back together uh, on the week following. Next week, we only have two topics. Uh, We have hell and heaven, and uh, they are certainly worth all the time. But since we uh, have a gap, what I was wondering is this. If you would think back over the whole book, maybe cast your eye down the table of contents, um, and think of... Uh, the most important thing or some important things that have touched you in our study of Dr. Packer's work that have such a broad view of the whole of Christian theology. Um, uh, something that uh, you have has stirred in your thoughts about the Lord or um, uh, the uh, way of salvation or your calling as a disciple. And if we could, I'd like to have, to have us take some time then to have you all share uh, what you found valuable in the study. I think that might be an encouragement, and also the different perspectives might broaden uh, how we would think about what we've been through together over these last weeks, months, I should say. Um, uh, So I hope that's agreeable to you, and that'll be our plan. Um, Let's turn then to, to page 250, The Second Coming, Jesus Christ will return to the earth in glory. And the passage from 1 Thessalonians 5, a very, very important passage. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Wonderful encouragement to all believers. Uh, These are mysterious things. There are things that are dark about them. Uh, But we're not in the darkness in Christ. And uh, the Lord intended uh, his revelation to tell us something, not everything, uh, about these matters. 
uh, Dr. Packer starts this chapter by noting that the New Testament repeatedly talks about the return of Christ. That in a host of very interesting ways, two of the chief ones, uh, his appearing, uh, we get our word um, epiphany from uh, that Greek word and uh, the idea of coming or parousia, as uh, Dr. Pecker notes in the text. The teaching is that Christ is going to return to the world in glory. Um, Now, the Old Testament expectation, I'll just note here, was for a coming Messiah, but and and for a variety of things to be accomplished by that Messiah. What threw people off, what threw John the Baptist off, as we noticed uh, earlier in our study, was that Jesus appeared to be some of the things the Messiah was to be, but not all of them. Uh, for example, one of uh, John's chief points was that uh, it's the time of judgment. The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. And uh, and yet judgment didn't come, and the prophet of God was murdered by a tyrant. Um, and the, the thing that unfolded throughout Jesus' ministry and then the apostles was that in one sense there is only one coming of the Messiah, but it's in two stages. The first stage was in order to sacrifice himself and make possible uh, in God's mercy, the salvation for his people. And that he would ascend in glory to rule over the age to see to the accomplishment of that gathering and perfecting of his people. And then he would come again in glory as a mighty conquering uh, champion of righteousness and justice, uh, peace and truth. Uh, so that the the first coming was the first stage of the coming of the Messiah. That stage is being carried on now as he reigns, but apart from us on high. And the second coming then is, as it were, the consummation of the comings of Christ. Um, and Dr. Packer notes four points about it, that it will be personal, physical, visible and triumphant. Personal, that is, not just the spirit of Christ dwelling with us now, but Jesus, the God-man, in his human nature. Uh, Physical, um, it won't be an appearance, a mere appearance, but he'll be bodily with his people. And thus, instead of walking by faith from that point on, we will be walking by sight, and it will be a demonstration of the extraordinary triumph of Jesus in this age-long project, the gathering and perfecting uh, his elect. Um, when he comes, he will, Dr. Packer points out, bring an end to history, the history of this age. He will raise the dead, and he'll be the judge of the world, uh, bringing his people into their final glory, and uh, not only uh, their glory, but a place for them uh, to live gloriously, a what Dr. Packer calls a reconstructed uh, universe. The um, This is the last phase, as Dr. Packer, and the final triumph 
of his mediatorial kingdom. Now remember, we've distinguished already between Christ uh, as king, uh, as a part of the Trinity, over all things with respect to creation. We might call that his creation rule. But then he came to be a king of another sort, the king as mediator for his people and gathering as mediator that people into a mediatorial kingdom. And that's what's going on now in the building of the church. Um, the uh, Once that's accomplished, the gathering and perfecting of his people, the specific work of the mediatorial kingdom will be over. It will come to an end. And that's what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. Uh, Jesus, as it were, hands over that mediatorial kingdom, uh, subjecting himself to the Father, signifying that the plan of bringing to the elect, the elect to heaven, uh, through the risen Son, had been carried through. Um, the, uh, the, those that Christ has saved, purified and perfected, they honor the Lamb for, forever in the work that he had done. And they're brought into the new Jerusalem. Uh, God and the Lord there reign together. But this is now, as it were, a new reign. The reign of the ongoing relationship between God and his perfectly godly people in Christ. Uh, something that had been intended before the fall and now gloriously restored in a much better way uh, through Christ's redemptive work. Let me pause there. Any questions about anything uh, I've noticed in the text so far? All right, I'll press on. We're on 251, uh, and I'm looking at the uh, first full paragraph on that page. And um, the uh, P- Paul makes reference to 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, let me notice this in passing. First and 2 Thessalonians are probably the earliest of Paul's letters. And they're written to a newly planted church. And yet, we know from these two letters more about the end of the age and the return of Christ than in any other place in the New Testament. I say that even with respect to Revelation, because Revelation is so full of symbolism uh, that if we didn't know what we know more prosaically in these Thessalonian passages, uh, we'd have a very hard time wading through that material. And the point I want to make is this, that these subjects aren't arcane subjects removed from reality, having no practical significance in the life of God's people. They're not subjects that belong only to the uh, mature, the the, uh, initiated into the higher things. These are things that a newly planted church in a pagan world needed to know in order to bear witness to Christ, the nature of the age they lived in, and uh, to um, be a part of spreading that kingdom. This mindset 
would be crucial to the life of the church from the very beginning. Well, what Paul talks about in this passage is that Christ's coming uh, is taking the form of a descent from the sky. Uh, You remember that harkens back to the ascension and the saying of the angels in like manner he'll come again. Heralded by trumpets, a shout, a voice of the archangel, All of those who have already died in Christ will be with him. uh, And all the Christians that are alive at that time will be raptured. Here, Dr. Packer is playing, toying with this a little bit, using a term that for most of its meaning in Christian theology doesn't agree with it, but I I think he's being uh, puckish here to use the term. It's actually a a biblical term, but it's become uh, the term of one party that... uh, as he notes, um, uh, and that party says that the rapture is Christians being taken out of the world only for a, uh, a period of time uh, before Christ then comes a third time, a second second coming. Uh, and this you would have known about from the uh, movement called dispensationalism, or at least part of it, and the wildly popular uh Left Behind series, both novels and uh, film. But in any case, Dr. Packer says we shouldn't pay any attention to that. Uh, But this glorious thing is just what Paul uh, has in mind. And these that are brought up to be with him then become a triumphant escort to Christ uh, returning. Now, in this language and in... Uh, all eschatological language. Let me say in passing that it's best not to try and understand these terms in a literal sense. In many eschatological passes, uh, the terms are distinctly combined as contradictory in order to shock and um, uh, bring home a symbolical point. So, for example, a lake of fire Uh, an utter impossibility with respect to the world as we know it. Uh, But it's an image because of its shocking character that gets our attention. And eschatological language is of that character. It's not inviting you to suppose a state of affairs where water can burn. Um, But it's inviting you to suppose that something that's absolutely essential to life in every way for us suddenly becomes a source of death. Uh, That's the terrible judgment. Um, And so too, uh, uh, and the point is, um, symbolism doesn't mean something that's not real. What's being symbolized is a reality, but it's a reality that is communicated to us in figurative language because the reality that's being talked about is really beyond description. It's something so far out of our experience. Um, And thus, uh, the best students of uh, biblical eschatology urge that we exercise caution that the vivid symbolism of eschatological language uh, be kept in mind and to avoid over-interpretation of apocalyptic details. Well, and Dr. Packer helps us to see that here. The uh, 
the significance, the trumpet. I don't think we should necessarily suppose that there's going to be some gigantic trumpet in the sky. But what does a trumpet do in the scripture? Uh, it, it calls uh, attention. It demands attention. Uh, it calls uh, the troops to battle and so on. Clouds in the Old Testament signify God's active presence in the midst of his people. Uh, and so um, what he describes, Dr. Packer says at the top of 252, is beyond our power to imagine. Uh, but we should absolutely take it as his word that this is how it shall be. Let me pause there with that question about eschatological language. Jen, I see your hand is up. Um, I have a few thoughts. Um, I'll go backwards. Um, So the lake of fire, um, it is very difficult to imagine all of these things, and it is a good caution not to try to think of them as completely literal, but just when you said that, um, I mean, Christ did walk on water. No one would have ever imagined that he could have been able to do that. I mean, the, the miracles are supernatural, and him coming back is supernatural. And so, I mean, uh, the, just... the, if I could, the, the, the point of uh, him walking on water, as you say, is supernatural. It's a miracle. It, mm-hmm. It's showing that he rules over the created order. They appear in the midst of historical narratives. Mm-hmm. Apocalyptic language is not a historical narrative. It's bringing together a variety of kinds of symbols in order to communicate something that's really beyond communication. That's what I'm trying to get at. Does that help okay. at all? Yeah, and I mean... Revelation now, you know, it totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm hoping there are all, are all those candle stands or lampstands. <laughs> um, but then um, going back from there, um, talking about the Thessalonians in a pagan world, it, um, I mean, we're living in a pagan world now too. Sometimes it, I think we think of their pagan world as being uncivilized in a sense, and that's what made people pagans. But the pagan that you're talking about is those that are unbelievers and are living in sin continually, right? Well, actually, I mean something slightly different. I'm glad you brought that up. I I mean um, pagan in the sense of... uh, um, What's the word I want to use? Pervasively non-Christian. Mm-hmm. The culture do- doesn't know anything about Christianity. It hasn't been formed by Christianity. It's a culture that's formed only uh, according to the sinful rebellion of mankind. And well, We must we, have cultures now that are like that, don't we? Uh, there's hardly a culture that hasn't been touched in some way by Christianity. I mean, think of one of... It might be thought of that... Uh, uh, China is one of the most um, abysmal countries with respect to human good and, and so on. But Christianity is pervasive there. And there, are okay. more, there are more Christians there than, I believe, any place else in the world. So that's a different use than we can think of um, 
just in the news, we'll talk about in the news, there are people who, to me, show themselves to be utter pagans, but that's a different use of the word, because they're so sinful, they're notoriously sinful. Right. And it'd almost be better to say, uh, uh, in a sense, it's an insult to pagans to have those kinds of people called pagans. Uh, because they're worse than the pagans. <laughs> yes, that's right. Right? Yeah. Because they've that's, heard of Christianity. That, that's right. That, okay. Um, and probably somebody else has something to say, but I have one other thing. So... Well, jump in. I don't see right. any other hands. So then b before that, you were talking about the mediatorial kingdom, and you talked about um, the church. Um, how did you put it, that it was building the church going on uh, in the building of the church? That's the mediatorial kingdom. Yes. Um, yes. And it... Sometimes it's discouraging because it seems like the church is a mess. <laughs> you know, like, is he really building the kingdom? Uh -huh. I mean, the church. Yes. And so I thought of those shows that I've been watching on um, Netflix about these derelict buildings in Britain and they're redoing them. And a lot of people would look at those buildings and think, there's nothing at all you could do with that. You ought to just tear it down. But these people who buy them, they have a vision, and they are able to build it. And yes. a lot of people are doubting it the entire time. Yes. But then there's a beautiful product at the end. And it seems like a good analogy. Oh, yeah. It's great. But, it reminds me of uh, Dr. Alexander's illustration. He said uh, oh, right. he had gone yeah. to visit a great cathedral that was under reconstruction. And so it was entirely covered by scaffolding. And it just looked like chaos. Uh, and uh, he said, and all kinds of movement, but it looked like chaotic movement and things going on. He said, but at the end of the day, when that scaffolding is taken down, there's going to be a magnific magnificent cathedral there. Right. And he said, that's the way we ought to look at the outward form of the church in this age right now. A scaffolding is all up. Building is going on. We won't be able to see it until Christ returns. Right, right. And I, it's also, I mean, he's building our faith, right? We're having yes. faith in him that he is doing that. And we are the church. I mean, it isn't a building. And that we have to remember that when we don't feel like we're actually growing in grace yes. and faith. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you, Jen. Uh, Bonnie. To tag on to what you and Jay were talking about, um, so what you're saying is that in Thessalonians, it was a world that there was no knowledge of the Lord. That's right. And even though... I guess I'm thinking of individuals that I know who've grown up never hearing anything about the Lord that I've met until they've met us, the weird Christians, and they've actually gotten to know that there are, are I say weird Christians, and that we're so totally different from what they've grown up with. But, um, and yet, the culture that they grew up in still did have yes, parts that's right. this was them individually. So you're talking about the culture. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. 
In fact, you know, those folks know more about Christianity uh, in their ignorance of it than pagans did at this time. I mean, at this time meaning the Thessalonian period. Their whole culture had been formed by uh, the, the disobedience of creation against God and his anointed. All right, any other thoughts on that? Jen, your hand is still up. Are you wanting to get my attention or? Oh, well. Um, so, where are we? Uh, we are on 252, and we're about to take up um, the uh, what the New Testament re- reveals to us about the time period between Christ's first coming and his return. There are a few specific predictions that are made about that period in the New Testament, preeminently uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, But none of the things that are said about this process, uh, this period, Dr. Packer wants to say none of these things even could yield an approximate date for the end of the age when Christ would return. The things that are identified are not usually discrete events that take place and you can check them off, but they're processes that belong to the whole inter-advental movement uh, period. Um, So there'll be Jewish converts, uh, increasingly so perhaps, and he mentions that some think that... uh, there might be some kind of a national conversion of Jews before Christ returns. There'll be false prophets and antichrists, but in both of those cases, that goes on throughout the whole of the uh, intertest or uh, this period between his two comings. Uh, as you can see from the John text, he's talking about antichrists will appear and are appearing now in his time. Um, apostasy of faith and tribulation for the faithful. But again, those are going to be characteristic of the whole period. Now there is this curious man of lawlessness uh, uh, thought to be preeminently the Antichrist, bringing what Paul says in Thessalonians uh, together with what John says in his epistles. Um, uh, but there are things that apparently Paul had taught about that that aren't preserved in the New Testament. So we don't exactly know all that he's talking about when he challenges the Thessalonians to remember what he had taught while he was with them. Uh, the, there's a thousand-year period referred to in Revelations 20. Uh, most people don't think that's actually a, a period of regular 24-hour days. Uh, some have thought, in fact, that that uh, chapter um, is referring to the whole history between Christ's two comings. And um, I think that is the sounder view. Um, but there does seem to be uh, a, some kind of climactic last power struggle. But again, even that would be a process. You, you wouldn't know from the beginning, for example, um, because there would have been other 
huge power struggles um, that have marked the whole period. So the conclusion, no dates can be deduced from any of the data. The time of Jesus' return remains completely unknown. Um, the, um, and uh, he goes on to say the return of Christ will have the same significance uh, for Christians who are alive at the time uh, as it does uh, as Christians who die before it happens. In other words, it will be exactly the same experience. If I die, I'm with the Lord uh, and I'll be transformed. And if someone is alive at that day, they'll be with the Lord and be transformed perfectly. Um, it will be at the end of life in this world, Dr. Packer puts it, and the start of life in the world to come. Um, the uh, end, Christ uh, teaches about this again and again uh, in order that people would be awakened and aware that anyone who finds themselves unprepared uh, is in a terrible state. Um, there needs to be a sense of anticipation. Uh, the, and, and so the things about the return of Jesus ought to be on our minds regularly uh, because it encourages us, understood or rightly, in our current Christian service now, even if the second coming is two more millennia away from today. You can see this in uh, the one text, 1 Corinthians 15, is one of the most wonderful uh, discussions of uh, the resurrection and the return of Christ. And Paul concludes that by saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, all that he's talked about in that chapter about the death and resurrection and all of that, he thinks, is absolutely uh, crucial to being steadfast, immovable, uh, faithful to the Lord in labor, uh, and not hopeless, but rather hopeful that real good will come out of it. That, that's the connection between present Christian experience and uh, eschatology. The same point is made in 2 Peter 3.11. Peter has just rehearsed, again, the the, uh, events of the end of the age. And and he says, concluding, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and um, godliness? In other words, it's knowing about these things that informs and energizes our present faithfulness to Christ. We could put it this way, that um, Christian ethics have Christian eschatology as their framework. Uh, There's a profound connection between rightly understanding the things that are to come and knowing how to live well in this world right now. Uh, and Dr. Patter, Packer puts it beautifully, this teaches us to live, as it were, on call, ready to go and to meet Christ at any time. And, of course, we have to say, it's not just with respect to the second coming. We should live, uh, as it were, on call, remembering that we might be called home at any moment uh, to the Lord through death, so that the second coming 
might effectively be for us in an hour. Uh, we ought to live in light of that that kind of reality. Overall, the, the point about this age and the age to come. This age had a supernatural beginning. God created heavens and the earth with a word. And it will have a supernatural end. That is, the, the world's not just going to peter out. Christ is going to come and end that age by his final defeat of uh, death and, and evil and his final establishment of uh, his kingdom and purity. It's going to have a supernatural end. And the fact is, we, among people who are utterly anti-supernatural, we have to testify to this, and it's going to bring trouble. First uh, Peter, or Second Peter, two, three, and four, reminds the believers: know this first of all, that scoffers are going to come, scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they're going to say, "Where is this promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." They're going to mock this idea that we are to live with as a present self-consciousness in order to live well in this world. People are going to mock that like we're nutty. Um, and the saddest irony about that mocking is this. They're saying, where is that coming? Everything is always remaining the same. And the answer is, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that the... Uh, extended period of this age is extraordinary manifestation of God's patience for good but for any person who foolishly does not take advantage of that patience and doesn't come to believe and find a way in believing to be ready for that day it is, it is catastrophic well all right the second coming much much more could be said and but those are the essential points, I think, that Dr. Becker has beautifully set before us. Does anybody have a question or comment on the second comment? Dave, could I just real quickly, it reminds me of um, the very sad account of Harold Camping and the oh, teaching yes. by that radio yes. um, preacher whatever that was 20 15 20 years ago yes. and how how uh, terribly sadly mistaken and uh, he was and he led misled so yep. many yeah yeah uh, yep. but i also just have to give a shout out to your sermons on first and second thessalonians from several years ago on on these topics are are some of the most uh, practical helpful um, reminders and teachings on these remarkably, you know, complicated subjects. Um, so I just reminded of that during this this evening. Well, thank you, Paul. And uh, I will say that was some of the most ch challenging preaching I ever did in terms of my own preparation. Yeah. Uh, but they are great topics. I was looking forward to a giant trumpet in the sky. That's kind of wrong. <laughs> 
Well, you and Jenny, yeah. Jenny will have her candlesticks. You can have your trumpet. Maybe, the, maybe that'll be the deal. It'll be like one of those uh, Salvador Dali paintings where everybody has different things that are floating around the sky. And... Dave. Yeah. Um, to bring us back to reality. <laughs> um, this is a good caution. I mean, I'm glad Paul just brought up here of camping. And it seems like it goes in cycles. But, I mean, lately I've heard of people who, uh, as Christians, think they're prophets and they're prophesying things that didn't come to pass and they're all disappointed. So they're re-prophesying, changing the dates. And how tragic. Right. And this is a caution that would help us not get tangled up in things like that. Yes, that's certainly true. All right. Anything else? 254, general resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise in glory. This is a wonderful chapter, a wonderful subject. Um, we Remember, we've argued that Jesus is the beginning of the resurrection. He's the first to raise, be raised from the dead, but he's the first fruits. And the completion, as it were, of his resurrection is going to be when he returns to uh, resurrect his people and the world to join him in resurrection glory, uh, to join him in resurrection life. Uh, Dr. Packer notes that there is a general resurrection, the whole human race, uh, but those who have uh, died without faith or remained without faith, they're being raised to a sentence of judgment. But Christians alive at his coming will instantly be transformed uh, and experience the transformation that those who have already died have undertaken. And those who are uh, who had died are going to experience a glorious re-embodiment which will take place simultaneously for those who are alive. So that resurrection uh, will be complete. Um, now, the New Testament teaches that there's a continuity between the mortal and the immortal body, as there was in Jesus' case and uh, in other instances. Paul uses the image of a seed and the plant that grows out of it. Um, the, uh, and the seed is remarkably different in some ways than the plant that follows. But nevertheless, there is some kind of uh, continuity. Now, um, this notion of uh, of the same body, that is the idea of continuity between the mortal and the immortal body, um, is a very mysterious one, and you have to have a great care not to um, uh, overanalyze the idea. Uh, There are some who suppose that this must mean that every atom that's in my body right now will somehow be restored from wherever it is in the whole universe at the time of the second coming and reconstitute the body. Now, there are so many absurdities that flow from that idea uh, that it'll make your head explode if you try and uh, follow the idea out. 
And the fact is, um, you may know that uh, virtually your whole body, every seven to ten years, has completely, all of your cells have been replaced. There's only two or three parts of you that has any real permanence. Uh, um, So that whatever we mean by bodily continuity, we don't even know what that amounts to through time in this world. With the body we actually have now, and so obviously you're going to have a hard time understanding what continuity there might be like a seed to a plant between this body and the resurrection body. We know that their resurrection bodies are radically um, restored to God's original purpose. Um, They're called spiritual bodies, not because they're not material, but because they're created and indwelt by the Spirit of God and sustained by His Spirit. They're perfectly adapted to spiritual life. And they'll be eternal, imperishable, and immortal, as this body that we have now is temporal, perishable, and mortal. Um, the um, Dr. Packer wants to go on and say that um, we will recognize one another uh, and um, that's an assertion. We don't know how that will come about. Um, the, uh, but uh, we will be recognizable. And the point is that that's essential to the way Paul uses the resurrection of the body for the comfort of believers who have lost loved ones. Um, so that the return of Christ is going to be a joyful reunion, not a reintroduction to strangers that we've never seen before. Uh, so if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, it's worth rehearsing quickly. We don't want you to be informed, uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That's the whole point of this teaching, is how do I help these beloved Thessalonians now who are grieving uh, the uh, death of their loved ones. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend, this is the text we've already read, Uh, The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are intended for practical comfort in this life to have some idea of uh, what is ahead. Um, The uh, end... uh, to think about the resurrected body, we're invited to look to Jesus. Um, just as his body was perfectly adapted to his calling as Messiah, our glorified bodies will be perfectly adapted to the regenerated and perfected soul within. Um, the uh, And 
uh, in fact, Dr. Packer nicely reminds us that the perfect adaptation of body to soul that we saw when Jesus was on earth is the model for the remaking of our bodies. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, a tremendous uh, hope. And Dr. Packer acknowledges on 256, right now we live with the experience that at best, our bodies in this age are poor tools to live out the Christian life. And furthermore, in a very important observation, Dr. Packer notes that many of the weaknesses with which saints struggle shyness, shortness of temper, lust, depression, coolness in relationships, and so on, are closely linked with our physical constitution so that the problem isn't just spiritual. It's rooted in bodily weakness and bodily patterning, he says, in our behavior. Patterning. That is to say that the body has the capacity for habitual behavior. That capacity is a wonderful thing with respect to good. All the good that you want to do, it doesn't have to be self-consciously pursued all the time. You get in the habit of doing it. Someone uh, says something kind to you, you say thank you. That habit is built into you. You don't have to consciously think, oh, what do I say to such a kindness? But the fact is that same capacity uh, can be for evil. Repetition of doing bad things no longer comes to require a conscious determination to do something wrong. It's just built into us. I'll never forget the Wilson kids uh, talking about a public figure, and uh, I think it was uh, Rachel said, uh, uh, "Oh no, Ben! I think it was Ben said." Uh, he's lying. And and Rachel said, how, how do you know that? And Ben said, his lips are moving. The, uh, <laughs> a person can be so habituated, and this is the horror of it. So the point is that the, the body in this age is a part of our problem. It's not evil, but its weaknesses contribute to our overall struggle with sin. And This doctrine is so precious. It teaches us that one day our bodies will perfectly match our perfected, regenerate characters. And they'll be perfect instruments for our lives before the Lord and one another for eternity. This is called glorification uh, because it's a manifestation of God's excellence in our lives. It is a completion of what God began when he gave us the gift of the new birth. Uh, and it will be a perfect and permanent conformity to Christ. Um, and he notes uh, on 256 in the first full paragraph, 
uh, the perfect seven perfections that belong to this glorification. We'll have perfect knowledge. We'll have the perfect enjoyment of being with the Father and the Son. Uh, perfect worship and service integrated into the whole of who we are, heart and mind, body and soul. Perfect deliverance from all that is sinful, evil, weakening, frustrating. Perfect fulfillment in all our desires, though not some will carry on into the next age. Uh, But not only a fulfillment of those desires, but nevertheless, they will continue to grow. Uh, So you'll have a greater desire to be more wonderfully satisfied in a capacity that will be extraordinary. Six, the perfect completion of all that's good and valuable in this world's life, uh, but was left incomplete uh, because uh, life ended and uh, our desire outran our capacity. And then finally, endless personal growth in the encompassing of all of these perfect things. Beautiful statement and certainly ought to wonderfully stir us to look forward to that day. Um, Paul, uh, Dr. Packer closes by noting the striking past tense, as he puts it, of Romans 8.30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul knew very well glorification was still future. But Paul knew even better that since that glorification was uh, a part of God's work with the elect. It was just as certainly true as if it had already been done. The past tense, he says, is meant to tell us um, that it's absolutely impossible for glorification not to happen. That's the certainty of the Christian hope. Let me just comment a little bit more on um, the identity of the uh, body. Uh, our body now and the resurrection body. I already mentioned the fact that uh, the the body itself replaces itself. The body you die with is only maybe your your, um, eye lenses, uh, your teeth enamel, and parts of your brain. Well, the only thing that will have been with you since the beginning. Um, So it certainly doesn't have to do with atoms, so we'd have no continuity with our own body. Uh, Herman Bobbink thinks very deeply and wonderfully on this point. And he says that uh, what we're talking about here uh, is form or configuration or type. Each person in their body, uh, it's specific. And it doesn't have to do with atoms, but rather it has to do he calls calls the continuity having to do with the substratum of the body. The substratum of the natural body is going to be the substratum of the resurrection body. Uh, he says just what that is, we do not know and may never be able to know. But the point is this. Um, In the case of the human body, there is something that keeps its identity in an ever-going process of change. And this individuality, 
that's preserved through all bodily change is what is the seed for the resurrection body so that it truly will be a resurrection body not a new creation body uh, it'll be the arising of the body that was laid in the ground to return to dust but its form will rise up from there that substratum it is and remains a material thing but now no longer organized as perishable flesh and blood but a glorified body I think that may be a helpful way to think about it Uh, anyone a question a comment uh, on that point All right, well, judgment seat then. The last of them, uh, that God is coming as judge. Um, The certainty of final judgment, Dr. Packer insists, is the framework within the New Testament gospel is preached. In other words, it is the certainty on the horizon of judgment that that provides uh, uh, the significance of saving grace. It's because there's a coming day of wrath uh, that will certainly come to pass in God's judgment. It's because of that that it is so crucial for those who will be subjects of that just wrath uh, to find some way uh, to uh, uh, avoid it. So that um, indignation, anger, fury, these words that are spoken of here Dr. Packer insists, are judicial words. They're not a person who doesn't have control over their emotions or their thoughts. It is a, uh, as it were, virtually uh, um, calm in the sense of not out of control, but a profound determination that God will judge sin. And that that message of coming judgment is for all of mankind. Um, and part of the great work of the mediatorial kingdom is to provide a way of rescue with respect to that coming judgment. Um, And when Christ comes again, he will be the judge. That will be part of his work in bringing the mediatorial kingdom to an end. All will give account of themselves. Uh, The regenerate will uh, give an account of themselves showing that the new life within them bore fruit, not perfectly, but nonetheless bore fruit so that the works that they bring forward will be a demonstration of their genuine faith, the faith which was justified by faith alone. Uh, Those who remain godless will have their works judged and they will... uh, and based on their own demerit, uh, they will be judged and found wanting. Um, and Dr. Packer notes the Bible's clear. They'll be judged by the standard uh, of what they knew was God's will and had deliberately um, uh, repudiated. This will finally vindicate the perfect justice of God, which because of his patience over many years, and thus the rampant evil in the world, some might have wanted to raise 
as an accusation against God. Look at the world. How is it that you could be just? This promised judgment is the final vindication, God's self-vindication, against the suspicion that he did not care about righteousness. Um, The uh, fallen angels will be judged on that day as well. Um, uh, And somehow, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, uh, teaches the saints will be involved in the process. We could speculate on it, but we're running out of time, so... I won't. Um, And in any case, Dr. Packer notes the scripture does not reveal their precise role. But he concludes with this. Knowledge of future judgment is always a summons to present repentance. Only the penitent will be prepared for judgment when it comes. And let me draw your attention in conclusion to the wonderful end of uh, the Westminster Confession statement on uh, the judgment of God in 33.3. Very beautifully framed. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so he will have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and always be watchful because they do not know at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Well, there's our uh, sections tonight. Uh, Any questions, comments, um, concerns that you have? Mike or Anne or Bonnie? Bonnie, let's go with you. Uh, Dave, it's Bill. Oh, uh, Bill, sorry. I uh, It's just striking again, um, these three chapters together uh, point to what Packer and you are emphasizing, and yet um, as you've warned, getting caught up in this symbology of the end times can distract from the real purpose of of God of God's plan and purpose yes. and, and um, I think uh, Paul of course in Thessalonians um, you know he, he puts this practical, uh, footstomp to it all that um, this is for our encouragement and this is for our for our holiness. Yes. Um, and and we ought not get too uh, awestruck or too scared even of reading Revelation because uh, it can cause us to lose sight of the whole point of it. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, Bill. Other thoughts, concerns, questions, comments? All right, let me repeat um, what I did at the beginning. Uh, We have one more Wednesday to go in Concise Theology. Um, That's next Wednesday. I will wear wear black to be in mourning uh, for that meeting. 
Um, but uh, we only have two sections, uh, hell and heaven. And uh, so I thought we may have a little extra time. And if we do, it would be lovely if each of you could think about some way this study has profited you. Uh, perhaps the most important thing you thought you learned or several things that uh, were very helpful to you. Uh, learned either about how to think about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or think about the plan of redemption, or to think about what it means for you to be a disciple in this context and have that work applied to your life, the different ways we've spoken about that, or the things in respect to the end. Maybe if you'd want to look over the whole table of contents and see if there's anything that especially stood out to you. Um, I think that could be profitable to us, not just interesting, because each of us in a different place in life have different concerns, and by sharing something that seems important to you, you can help either awaken or uh, refresh another uh, in that idea. And uh, so it seems like it might be a profitable thing to do. Um, so I hope you'll think about it in the week intervening and come prepared to talk about the book as a whole and how it was a help to you. Um, I have been neglecting the chat box. Is Are there things that... Uh, no. Uh, oh, it had to do with hearing me. Well, I hope it was solved. <laughs> um, all right. Any other comments? Well, thank you all again for participating. Um, it's uh, been a Wonderful evening. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, how wonderful. Know that one day Christ will return and that we shall be with him. Not by any merit of our own, but because of his determination to hold on to those given to him by the Father and let no one snatch them from his hand. And that determination will be finally vindicated when he returns and finishes the work of our redemption, that our, our uh, resurrected inner life would be perfected in his image, that our resurrected body would be perfected after the manner of his own resurrection body, and that the creation itself will be restored and refreshed, perfectly adapted to resurrection bodies, a restoration of all things. What a hope. We thank you for the idea of um, the general re resurrection and all that's associated with that. And we thank you for the knowledge of judgment. And we pray that it would again uh, not be mocked in our time, but taken seriously. It would be a restraint to those who would do evil. It would lead to the awakening of those who could become repentant, and it will lead to comfort for the godly facing the adversities of this life. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.